0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, there's still so much to learn about the plasticity of the human brain, especially when it comes to children.
1: You don't need to make children learn. You just need to let them learn. And Mm -hmm. to a large extent, what you need to do is just kind of get out of the way. Their exploration and learning is so, uh, and learning capacities are so powerful that you put them in a world that they can explore and they'll figure it out and learn.
0: And later, what happens to our brains as we age? The research may surprise you.
2: Another myth. Older adults are experiencing a time of neural decline. Well, yes and no. Most 70- and 80-year-olds are going to be better at solving problems. They're going to be better at seeing patterns in the world around them, which enables problem solving.
0: The wonders of the human brain, from babies to elders, and what we can learn from both, all ahead on Life Examined. As any parent will tell you, babies and young children are incredibly fast learners. It's fair to say that children are the best learners in the world. Under the right circumstances, they can easily learn multiple languages, skills, instruments, and so on. That's because human childhood, from an evolutionary perspective, is geared for learning. The longer the period of immaturity in childhood, which means being well-fed and taken care of in a safe environment, the more the baby's brain develops into that of a constant explorer. So how do we harness this incredible capacity to learn as we age? And what can parents do to allow their kids to flourish? This is something that Alison Gopnik has been studying for decades. She's a professor of psychology and philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, where she runs the Cognitive Development and Learning Lab. She's also the author of The Philosophical Baby and The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Teaches Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. Alison Gopnik, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you. Um, let's start with, with just this, this wonderful question of understanding the infant's brain. Um, take us in, into this subject. I mean, what gives them the ability to be such explorers people, uh, that, that are willing to just look at everything, taste it, feel it. Can you talk about what's going on inside their minds?
1: Yeah. So it's an interesting question. We know that babies and young children are, are the best learners in the universe, but we still don't know very much about exactly what it is that makes them as good at learning as they are, you know, much, much better than any, uh, any artificial intelligence. And one of the ideas that I've been arguing for and thinking about a lot lately is that babies and young children may really be designed to learn. So people in computer science talk about a trade-off between exploration and exploitation. So it's actually very hard to get a system that's very good at doing things efficiently and effectively. Think about all the things you need to act well in the world. You need to have long-term planning and you need to ignore distractions and you need to focus. But if what you want is to both learn as much as you can about the world and explore as many possibilities in the world as you can, all those things that are big advantages from the exploit perspective can be real drawbacks from just the exploration and learning perspective. And things that look like um, bugs from the explorer, exploit perspective, things like doing a lot of very random variable things, being impulsive, Mm. uh, having a very wide focus on the universe, those things are, are actually advantages from the Uh, perspective of exploration. So one of the things that I think is that childhood itself from an evolutionary perspective is really an adaptation that lets us have this long period of exploration and learning because we're being taken care of by the grown-ups around
0: us. Right, that's a great point. And and it strikes me when I read your research is is just um, recognizing how long this period of childhood lasts. I mean, it seems so specific to our species, this prolonged period of childhood.
1: Yeah. So we have, our childhood is twice as long as that of our closest primate relatives. Mm. So, you know, most chimps by the time they're about seven are actually producing as much food as they're consuming. And, and for human babies, that's humans. That's not true until they're at least 15, even in forager hunter gatherer kinds of Societies, let alone in our society, and we seem to have many more people involved in taking care of babies and children because mm. that's because of that very long period. We have not only mothers but fathers and um, grandmothers and what anthropologists call alloparents, other people involved in caring for children. So this picture is that we have this network of people looking after these babies and young children who are using up a lot of calories in their brains as well and. And it's a bit of a puzzle from an evolutionary perspective. It seems so evolutionarily expensive. Mm. Um, what's the advantage? And if you look across many, many different species of animals, even butterflies, what you see is the longer that period of immaturity in childhood is, the better, the more learning there is. And if you yes. actually even look at babies' brains, you can see this. So what you see is that there's this early period when many, many new connections, many new synapses are being formed. And then there's this later period where the ones that are used a lot get maintained and strengthened, and then the ones that aren't are pruned. So you kind of go from a brain that's really, as neuroscientists say, really plastic, really good at changing in the light of new experience, but not very good at doing anything Mm. in particular to a brain that's very good at acting swiftly and effectively and getting things done, but not so good at changing and learning things that are new. So you really almost have like two creatures, this young creature and older creature really designed to... To do different things.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's funny how you think about how kind of inefficient and unpractical this long period of childhood mm-hmm. is, right? You, you, just as you mentioned, you hear these incredible stories. I remember I was in Africa and I think it was the wildebeest. They're like, they're born and they're running with a pack, right? right? It's like there <laughs> there is no delay, but <laughs> y- young humans, we just, boy, we need we need a lot of time and support. It's kind of amazing, isn't it?
1: It is indeed. And, you know, it's funny that you say this, Jonathan, as we speak, my, uh, my 10 month old uh, grandson is, is staying with me. And mm. it's just sort of amazing. There's this little creature and there's, you know, five grown grown-ups who are all <laughs> putting in all this work and time and investment. And here he is just, you know, every second. It's funny because of course, I'm, you know, this is my professional view based on lots and lots of careful laboratory experiments. But the truth is, if you just sort of sit down with a 10 month old for uh, 10 minutes and just watch how many experiments he's performing, how actively he's involved in just figuring out what's going on in the universe, how you can, you know, simple things like the fact that you can distract a baby from being fussy just by giving him something new to look at. Mm -hmm. Um, that probably wouldn't work so well if you were talking about um, an adult and (laughs) that, you know, incredible drive to explore just seems to be so deep, uh, so deeply part of what babies are like. And one of the things that we're doing now is collaborating, for instance, with people in computer science, trying to design artificial intelligences. And a big idea across a lot of different, uh, a lot of different areas now is if you could design a system that goes out and actually tries to get its own data, actually tries to get experiments, tries to actively find out about the world that way 10 month olds do, that would be a big advance in terms Mm. of having a really intelligent system.
0: Mm. Say say more about that. What what would we hope to learn from an experiment like that?
1: Well, what we're trying to do is sort of two things in parallel. One thing we're trying to do is figure out could we get a a system that could learn as effectively as babies do? And could generalize as well as babies do, um, and since babies are spending so much of their time exploring, uh, would exploring be the secret? Would giving a giving a an AI curiosity be the secret that would actually let it learn like the way babies do? But then, of course, the other side of that is that by uh, by looking at what you'd have to do to design a computer that could explore that will tell you something about the computer inside of those little lovely downy downy heads mm-hmm. that is actually solving these problems, that is actually motivated to go out and explore. So we're both trying to figure out you know, are there ways that we could use the babies as models for a computation, but we're also trying to figure out what is that little brain doing that's mm-hmm. letting it uh, that's motivating it to go out in the world and, and act the way that it does and that lets it learn so much.
0: Yeah, I- interesting. And I, I always am curious in, in how sometimes trauma can factor into this. You mentioned earlier how the young brain perhaps is so full of wonder because it's protected. Um, <laughs> it, has, it doesn't have to worry about certain uh, primary resources. And, and we think of children that don't have that and perhaps how it might change their brains when they're young, uh, if, if they don't have that the ability to be curious, to be safe in their wonderment. Is that true, do you think?
1: Well, there's some very interesting studies. In fact, I was just just writing about a, a brand new study that came out um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, sorry, in Nature Neuroscience Reviews, um, where uh, uh, Allison Mackey, who said, Neuroscientist who's at the university of Pennsylvania and her colleagues were reviewing all the work about the effects of things like, uh, what they call adverse childhood experiences yeah, on brain yeah. development. And the really interesting thing kind of counterintuitively that comes out again and again, is that the effect seems to be to make the brain grow up too quickly. Right. So you might have thought that, you know, the effect of having an adverse experience would be that, you know, it would take longer to get to the adult state, but it seems kind of the opposite. It's as if those adverse experiences are are giving a signal that says look you're not in this protected uh, you're not in this protected environment you can't really afford spending a lot of time learning you better get up into that adult exploit state as quickly as you can um, and conversely having you know a rich protected environment at least in animal studies seems to leave your brain open for longer mm-hmm. seems to keep that state of uh, keep that state of plasticity and openness and potential for learning longer. So really, it seems as if having this having this protected safe environment and having people around you who care about you and take care of you is is really helping to keep that brain more in a more childlike state. And I think that's even true for adults that that being not feeling you know again, somewhat counterintuitively, not feeling under the pressure to perform all the time can actually be, the state that makes you most creative, most imaginative, best at learning, best at changing in the light of new experiences.
0: And I think so many of us could, could identify with this on one level or another. I, I think of um, studies I've seen about children, right, in, in school trying to learn or take tests when, they're, when their fight or flight is triggered. And, and we all know that feeling. There's a shutdown or like a tunnel vision. It's hard to focus. It's hard to make decisions. And just, you know, just to refer to what you were saying, if, if a child is under this immediate threat consistently, no questions here, I think, about how it impacts learning, future development. Um, and, and greater disparities moving forward.
1: You know, there's a kind of uh, paradox in our society as it as it works now, which is that there's a great deal of anxiety among the parents who ha- actually have a lot of resources, mm-hmm. and probably for those parents, just chilling out a bit would
0: be yeah <laughs> uh,
1: would be a way of making everybody's lives um, easier. Yeah. Um, so you know, we don't want to say that when you say sort of protected and nurtured you don't mean someone hovering over you every second trying to figure out whether you're safe or not um but on the other hand we know that you know there's still a very large number of children uh, growing up in in poverty and isolation in the united states and there's many children who are experiencing these adverse childhood experiences like having violence in the mm. community or um or neglect and And those children do seem to be at risk for all sorts of other kinds of outcomes. So just simple things that we could do, uh, policies that in fact most places in the world have, like having family allowances so there's enough resources available for children or having parental leave so that there isn't as much pressure on children, supporting caregiving, Mm. having having high quality childcare. It's not rocket science, right? All of those are things that Um, are ways that we could help make sure that all children have this, uh, have the kind of environment in which they can learn the best.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for for kind of bringing some attention to that. And also, I think for the nuance of that, um, kids in all parts of society feel stress, whether they're in quote unquote high achieving areas or not. And I think that that's a really important point here. Thanks for, thanks for saying that. And to me, it also, it makes me think of the work you've done, particularly in one book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, where you talk Mm -hmm. about different parenting styles and what they, you know, what they mean and how they work with the child's development. Can you um, welcome us into some of these ideas of The Gardener and Carpenter? Tell us how they, how they work.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the things that's happened for most of human history, the way that you learned how to care for children was that you cared for children so by the mm. time you had children yourself you'd taken care of a lot of younger siblings and cousins and you'd see seen lots of aunts and uncles and other people taking care of children and what happened in the What's happened more recently, again, for these these middle-class parents is that you have parents who've never taken care of a child, who are having a child themselves. But what they have done is they have spent a lot of time working and going to school. So when they have a child, they think that it's like working and going to school. And the thing about things like working and going to school, that's this carpentry metaphor, is that there's a bunch of techniques that you can use to make things come out the way that you want them to come Mm -hmm. out. So I think there's a temptation to think that what Uh, caregiving is about is something like that. You're trying to shape a child who will come out a particular way. And that kind of picture, that model is embedded in the very word parenting, which only started showing up in the 1970s in the United States. The idea that there's a bunch of work you can do, a bunch of things that you can do that will make your child come out a particular way rather than another way. And I don't think the science supports that very much. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, the basics of loving children, having enough resources for them, having caregivers um, who are around them, that really is important, but sort of beyond that, the kinds of things that that um, that middle-class parents obsess about, like, you know, is he facing forward or is he facing backwards or is he being sleep trained or is he mm. sleeping through the night? Those kinds of things. Um, I don't think we have very much evidence that very much of that ends up having uh, a long-term um, impact. Instead, the picture, is that if you think about not being a carpenter but being a gardener, what a gardener does is try to have a rich, nurturing environment in which many, many different kinds of things can happen. Different plants can thrive, different kinds of, and and at different times and in different environments, different kinds of capacities are possible. Um, And that kind of ecology, that sense of There's lots of variability. There's lots of unpredictability. You don't know what's going to happen next. I think that's a much better picture of how human caregiving works, that each generation gets to, as I said, you know, be in this explore state, explore what's going on in the world around them, explore what their environment is like, explore new possible ways of thinking about the world. Um, And they can do that because they're in this kind of sense that they don't have to, they have a sense that they don't have to do anything in the in the immediate future. And I think that's a healthier model for parents than, uh, than the kind of, if I d- don't do this exactly right, then some mm. awful thing is going to happen to the child in the long run. Now, it's very, you know, I've realized in some ways, I think, uh, you know, a nice, simple metaphor is always a good idea. But this this idea of parenting is so deeply embedded in our society that then, you know, people will say, okay, so what exactly do I have to do to be a gardener parent? And well, being a gardener parent, that will make right. my child come out better, right? right, right. Um, it's hard, it's very hard to release ourselves, including me from that um, uh, from that picture of what parenting is about. But, you know, here's one thing to think about is if you think about your other close relationships, your relationships to your partner or your relationship mm to your parents. You don't, you know, you don't husband your husband and you don't child your parents. Um, You don't assess whether you're a good wife or not by whether your husband comes out better after 20 (laughs) years than he did before. Um, Those are relationships. Those are about having a, a close tie and a commitment to another person. And I think that's really a much better picture of what Uh, of what all kinds of caregiving, but especially caregiving for children is about. And, and I think that hope and hope that in some ways, that's the easy part, right? Like loving the babies and children. That's, that's not so hard. And I hope this gives you a more empowering, liberating picture of, uh, of being a caregiver.
0: Yeah, I, I, I love that, those descriptions. Um, that was wonderful. I mean, we, we've done some programs on parenting and I love there was one description these days of a parent being like a cruise director, right? It's it's setting up all the possible different activities that would eventually uh, try and form the child into a, a successful adult. And that's something you talk about in the kind of carpenter mentality. It's this, It's this emphasis on who they will become eventually versus where they are now. And I, I think there's a lot of richness to that. If if there's anything else you would add to it, I, I'm really interested by it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the most. Uh, I think that maybe is the most important, or I I hope helpful message to parents is that, you know, this act of caregiving, and again, having my having my ten month old and and his parents here has really made this so vivid. It's it's such a deep, profound, significant human. Uh, capacity right you know that the relationship you have with a with a baby or with a young child is is so so deep and important and so much part of human uh, so much part of what makes us human mm. and and I think if parents can kind of feel like in the moment appreciating and understanding and uh, and thinking about that rather than always thinking about well what's going to happen in the future that that's a that would be a more um, a more helpful, more more empowering way of thinking about what's going on. Yeah. But I do think the most important thing is that from the, our scientific perspective is, again, we're we're in this mode of thinking always about parents and what their effects are. But really, this, you know, another way of putting it is you don't need to make children learn. You just need to let them learn. And mm-hmm. to a large extent, what you need to do is just kind of get out of the way their exploration and learning is, is so uh, and learning capacities are so powerful that you put them in a universe, put them in a world that they can explore, and they'll figure it out and learn.
0: When do you begin to see the the plasticity of of the of the child's mind begin to I don't know calcify a little bit or 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 change?
1: What happens is around school age, and it's no coincidence that that's when we send children to school in our culture or when children uh, become apprentices, for example, in in the past or in other cultures. Um, That seems to be a point at which you start seeing this transition from uh, this just very, very wide ranging plasticity and learning to actually getting skills, actually figuring out how to do things, getting executive function, being able to focus, having long-term planning. So that transition is really important. It's not as if you'd want, wouldn't want children to do that, but um, ideally that sort of child, that sort of school age period from about seven to about adolescence, that's a point when that, that transition seems to be starting. And then interestingly, there's some evidence that in adolescence itself, you kind of get this extra burst of plasticity, Mm. um, but about social things. So we've done some experiments that showed that, what we found was that um, in certain kinds of tasks, where you have to consider more unlikely options, um, young children, three-year-olds, are actually better than adults. Three-year-olds are better at getting to the unlikely option than the grown-ups are. And then when we looked at this overdevelopment, what we saw was that there was a shift in around seven where the children got to be a bit less flexible, though they were still quite a bit more flexible than the adults. And then for physical kinds of tasks, like figuring out how a machine worked, um, around adolescence, the, um, the adolescents started really looking like the adults. But if you had a social problem, then the adolescents kind of were even more exploratory than the three and four year olds. Um, mm. And then they dropped off again at, uh, at adulthood. So it, it's a complicated story about exactly how development unfolds. And I think there's a reason, and of course this kind of uh, makes sense from a, um, this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that Adolescence is a time when you're exploring different social possibilities, different ways that your world could be structured.
0: What do we take from this in terms of asking ourselves who who we want to become as adults? And I think sitting with this idea that things feel more stressful, more closed off, less open to wonder. Um, I know you work with Dacher Keltner. He was a guest on our program. Just recently, we talked about what what an incredible human emotion this is and how it seems it can be harder to access as you get older. What do we take away from the adolescent brain um, as we age?
1: Yeah. So I think, I think one of the questions that we can always ask is uh, what you know, this capacity for wonder, this capacity for exploration, this capacity for plasticity doesn't go away. Mm. It. I don't think we're ever quite in as intense a state of awe and wonder as we are when we're, you know, three or four, uh, when we're babies. But one of the things about humans is that we do have the capacity to switch back and forth from being in this really good, helpful, focused um, uh, state to... Being able to sort of pull back and have a broader sense of of wonder and um, dacker is a wonderful example of someone who's been studying this. Um, what are some of the things that can that can promote that in adults? And I think a lot of it is getting back into a state that's more like the state you're in as a child. For instance, trying to solve a new task or um, trying to do something that you haven't done before, um, and being able to do that in a safe setting where you know nothing directly uh, depends on it in the next m- moment one of the things that I think is a particularly good way of doing this is hanging out with babies and young mm. children <laughs> and again it's funny you know this has been my whole life but sitting with my uh, sitting with my beautiful 10 month old grandson this week I've realized oh I've really missed this this is yeah. this is this is just sitting with him in fact you know the problem is I could easily spend an hour just sitting in and watching him you can kind of get a contagious sense of of how much it is that the children are exploring. Um, you know, an example I give is just imagine the walk to the corner to get milk, right? You know, you're you're so used to that as an adult, you've done it so often, it becomes completely automatic and you don't even see anything. To do that same walk with a three-year-old, and it's like going to get a pint of milk with William Blake. You mm-hmm. realize that every block has pizza folders and uh, pizza flyers and dogs, and there's just an amazing variety of things, or or you go for a walk and suddenly there's realize there's airplanes, the sky's full of airplanes and birds and things that you don't usually see. Yeah. So I, I one of the things that I think is wonderful about uh, being a parent, about being a caregiver, is, uh, is that you kind of get to have both a very adult, responsible, um, important, significant job, and you also get to, uh, vicariously experience what it's like to have this broader sensibility but i think there are also things like meditation or like uh the kinds of things that induce all like walks in nature that that can do the same thing for um for adults and i think it's interesting that if you look in lots of different cultures and times um there's been this sense of of actually having institutions or practices that let you go back and forth so Mm. you know you can have a a retreat or have a uh various kinds of religious uh institutions that are sort of designed to give you a time when you could be in this kind of broader state.
0: To me, Austin, I I feel that there's this really interesting cultural tension right now with a lot of this. I, I I got into this debate with a friend of mine who was basically telling me that I need to you know be a little less serious with my public radio work, and I do psychotherapy on the side. And 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 he was saying you gotta you gotta be out more childlike and smiling and laughing and be <laughs> and even and partying and let's go to Burning Man this summer and let's just you know go for it. That's the way. That's the, that's the best way to be. And I think that ties into ideas of extended adolescence, or you never have to grow up, or Peter Pan syndrome, or a lot of these things. And on the other hand, there's this sense that there are stages of life. I think of like an Indian philosophy or this four stages of life, you become an elder and mm-hmm. you become wiser and you take on more responsibility. And it's, I, I sometimes wonder, how do we hold all of these things together? How do we understand the importance of both, how to navigate both? Um, and I, I welcome your thoughts on this. What do you think?
1: humans are a very cultural species that's one of our one of our most distinctive characteristics is that we learn from uh, past generations and each generation can pass on information to the next and there's some reason to believe that elderhood that kind of 55 to 70 also involves a really different kind of intelligence than Mm -hmm. either the intelligence of childhood that exploration or the intelligence of you know prime of life adulthood that kind of very focused Getting making my way in the world yes. intelligence. Yeah. And I think of it as being a kind of intelligence of care and teaching where you're less concerned about your own um, welfare and you're more concerned about, you know, other people and about passing on the stories of your childhood to the others. Um, I'm just, just writing one of my uh, Wall Street Journal columns about a fascinating new study that shows that even if you take a very simple... Um, you take a very simple uh, task, like squeezing a ball, and it, depending on how much effort you put in, you get points, and those points can either go to you or somebody else. Um, elders are much more likely to be willing to put in the effort to give points to somebody else than, um, than younger people are. And I think it's a very interesting kind of understudied question about what is this kind of intelligence that comes with age that I think might be very different from either the you know, free wheeling exploration that you see in the children, or the more focused um, uh, kind of capacity that you see in the typical adults. There's a, a fascinating um, study uh, by an anthropologist looking at hunting. And what he discovered was that, you know the 30 year olds, it takes a long time to be a good hunter, and the 30 year- olds are really the best hunters. and they tend to go out by themselves and hunt and bring things back. Now the elders aren't as effective anymore. They're not as strong as they once were, Um, but of course they know a lot about hunting Mm -hmm. and they're the ones who are going out with the children, um, the young seven and eight-year-olds, and actually teaching them about how to hunt. So I think it's really interesting to think about those different kinds of capacities that come uh, when you're caring or teaching, being altruistic, passing on information versus when you're, uh, and again, I, you know, I think it's important that all of us can do all of these things, so mm. to be, have a really fulfilled life as an adult is to be able to, to explore and exploit and care and teach. Those are all really deep parts of what it means to be human. But I think it's kind of an interesting thought that the children and the elders who tended to be sort of neglected in the story of psychology might be really strong examples of that. those capacities for exploration and care.
0: I've been speaking with Allison Gopnik, professor of psychology and philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. I have loved this conversation and all the ideas. Thank you so much for the time.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Once again, that was Allison Gopnik, professor and author of The Philosophical Baby and The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Teaches Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. And in just a minute, we'll be back to talk more about how the human mind works, this time at the other end of the spectrum, that is, the aging brain. We'll have that interview in just a moment. And while I have you, a personal note of thanks to all of you who gave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We reached our goal this summer of getting to 100 ratings and 50 reviews, which is awesome. And I gotta say, I enjoyed reading every single one of them. Thank you so much. And if you're one of our consistent listeners, please take a minute to write a few words. It really helps us grow the show and spread some of these important conversations. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. Once again, we'll be back after this short break.
2: Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled,
0: We just heard Alison Gopnik explain the fascinating voyage of exploration going on in a child's mind, but she also touched on a different type of intelligence, that which comes with elderhood. Many of us worry that the older we get, the more cognitive decline we'll experience, like forgetting names, words, or losing our ability to do things like drive. But there's good news. The aging brain is not necessarily designed to decline. Older people may take longer to process information, but years of experience ensures that most 70- and 80-year-olds are better at analysis and problem-solving. Neuroscientist, musician, and professor emeritus at McGill University, Daniel Levitin, explains that the aging brain, with the right stimulation, also has a great degree of neuroplasticity, and yes, is constantly growing new neurons. He's the author most recently of Successful Aging, a Neuroscientist Explores the Power and Potential of Our Lives. Daniel Levitin, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Oh, it's great to be here.
0: Um, well, We just heard from Alison Gopnik a little bit about the idea of plasticity of the brain, particularly in the baby's brain. And, and you've been looking at the neuroscience of aging, and I wonder... Um, what do we see happening in the brain as as we get into the 60s and 70s age group? And, and what, this question of plasticity, how does that factor into what we see with the brain?
2: Well, as uh, Dr. Gopnik would have told you, I'm sure babies are little scientists. They're, they're trying to explore the world. Believe it or not, those little infant brains are sophisticated statistical processors. At the other end of the spectrum, in our 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, We're also exploring the environment, but but in different ways uh, based on experience. So one thing we should uh, dispel with first is the myth that you don't grow any new neurons after a certain point. Mm -hmm. That's not true. You grow new neurons your entire life. Uh, And another myth is that we can't make new neural connections. that uh, We can't form new uh, neural circuits, but that's not true at all. you know, people, we've studied people into their hundreds and beyond who are certainly making active and new connections. They, they're learning new things. The great Pablo Casals, a cellist in his 80s, uh, some, a journalist walked in to him for an interview and saw he had been practicing and said, Maestro, you've, you've, you've played every major piece for the cello and, and you're one of the great musicians in the world. Why are you practicing? Mm. Casals says, because I want to get better. <laughs> And he did. Hmm. Uh, The difference, though, between the infant brain and the older brain is that while infants are constantly exploring and trying to make sense of the world, by the time we've hit our 60s and 70s and 80s, we've built up a whole lot of experience. Another myth. uh, Older adults uh, are experiencing a time of neural decline. Well, yes and no. Our processing speed slows down with every decade after 40. It takes us longer to do stuff. It takes us longer to hit the brakes in the car. It takes us longer to retrieve a word. But all that experience we've built up pretty much ensures that most 70 and 80-year-olds are going to be better at solving problems. They're going to be better at seeing patterns in the world around them, which enables problem solving.
0: I find it's kind of fascinating how some of the science is is still developing or, you know, that we're still learning these new things. I I was just reading a week or two ago how, how we even understand metabolism is changing now and that perhaps, uh, you know, between the ages of 20 and 60, metabolism doesn't change. I mean, there's just, there seems to be these kind of outstanding questions, say, about neural pathways you're talking about that we're still figuring out as the science gets better.
2: Well, you remember... Uh... Uh, the original Star Trek uh, they used to say space was the final frontier Mm. I think the brain is the final frontier Uh, it's it's the uh, the thing that we um, are just beginning to understand and for one thing you know we we haven't had that many older adults around to study until the last couple of decades you know People used to die earlier. Life expectancy have expanded by 20 years uh, since I've been alive. And um, the idea that, you know, 80 is the new 60. Look at pictures of 60-year-olds from the 1940s. And, you know, ask your family, anybody who knew your grandparents, your great-grandparents. If you were in your 60s in the 1940s or even in the 1960s, you were really slowed down and not expecting much. But now 60 year olds continue to work, some of them for 25 or 35 more years and they're valued members of their company uh, and they have a lot to contribute to society. I mean, our president is in his Mm -hmm. late 70s. The idea that we're still discovering a lot about metabolism and about neuroplasticity uh, is due to the complexity of these things uh, and we're constantly inventing new tools and techniques Uh, to to better understand the human body and the brain. One thing I think that's important for our KCRW listeners to recognize is that this is the way science works. Science is moving forward. Uh, We're positing new testable hypotheses. We're making observations, trying to figure things out. And what characterizes science is an attitude of open-mindedness. We form an idea about the world, but we're open minded to new evidence and we're willing to change our minds. And so, in partnership with you, with, with journalists, we try to convey the reality of that change. And it's frustrating. Uh, we're just following where the evidence leads us, and that can cause us to recontextualize things, such as neuroplasticity. Hmm. We didn't know that the brain could change. We didn't have the tools to measure it and the observations to support it.
0: So do you think it's important that as folks age, they maintain a state of openness or receptivity to new ideas? Or, or do you think it's more of what you said earlier, the ability to see patterns, relying on experience? What do you think?
2: Well, I think if we're talking about what you can do to uh, create a situation in which... Uh, You're going to age well, Mm -hmm. uh, successfully, meaning that you're going to be engaged with life. You're going to be a valued member of your social circles and possibly the community at large. You're going to wake up every morning with a lot of energy. Um, Openness is one of the key factors, being open to learning new things. The reason for that is that, you know, you're talking about infants uh, with, with Dr. Gopnik infants are constantly trying to learn about the world that's their job the the primary mission of the brain in the first ten years of life is to wire itself up to whatever it experiences uh, exist in its environment for later use by the time you hit your 60s most of us are less interested in exploring uh, think back to your 20s you might have uh, you might have uh, not really known what kind of music you like or what kind of food you like. Uh, in your 30s, you might be exploring restaurants and going to a different one every chance you get. By the time you're 60, the brain kind of, due to neurostructural and neurochemical changes, it becomes a bit complacent. You just want to go to the same restaurant you always went to because you mm. know you'll get a good meal. and You <laughs> want to order the same sure. thing you always got. And um we need to push back against that. We need to fight against that complacency because new experiences, whether they're whether it's meeting new people, learning a new language, learning to play an instrument, whatever it is, that's what creates the neuroplastic change. That's what grows new neural connections. And you really want to do that in your 60s and 70s and not rely on the old ones because that's what will confer brain health and what we call uh, cognitive uh, surplus, y- you want to have your brain trained like an athlete is trained. Y- you want to have extra capacity so that if if you do start to slow down, you won't notice it because you've built up all this brain strength.
0: You know, Alison Gopnik talked about how society has changed when it comes to parenting. You know, many parents are not familiar with babies because our, our families are so scattered throughout the country. Um, didn't the same is true for, for the older generation? I mean, um, do we need to do as a society a a better job of valuing older people as relevant as important still?
2: Well, I very, I very much agree with that. The, uh, the reason I wrote the book Successful Aging was because I wanted to start a conversation about changing the way we think about aging. In the last few years, society has addressed a number of pernicious biases that exist in our culture. I mean, we have a long way to go, but we're we're talking about racism and genderism, uh, equality for people uh, of different races, ethnic backgrounds, different gender and sexual identities. And um, the one thing that we haven't, you know, and before that, you know, uh, mobility challenges, but the one bias we still hold is ageism, and nobody's talking about it, often tend to think of older adults as irrelevant, as depressed, uh, as, as in decline, and that really stands contrary to the last 20 years of scientific, neuroscientific evidence. Our brains don't necessarily decline. We're not necessarily going to have memory problems. We can be active and productive. And there are so many role models. Jane Goodall, 90 years old, Hmm. still touring the world. Or Judy Collins, 81, just last year before the lockdown, a year and a half now, went on a new tour with new material, new songs she had written. Uh, I interviewed Jane Fonda for the book, uh, who's, you know, At the time, a couple of years ago, had a hit television series in Grace and Frankie. was really at the top of her game. And uh, the Dalai Lama, I interviewed him. He was 85 and had just published his 125th book. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's writing him faster than I can read him. I'm not just cherry picking a few examples or trying to focus on celebrities. In every community, there are people like that uh, contributing to the community at what we used to think of as an advanced age. They they just don't hit the newspapers for it, but they're there, Mm -hmm. uh, contributing to churches and civic groups, uh, helping out in hospitals, visiting the sick. If they have a specialty, they may be tutoring or mentoring. It used to be if you were a surgeon, you were supposed to retire in your 60s because of shaky hands, but with the new da Vinci techniques and robotic surgery, that's not even necessary. There's surgeons, who are are well into their 70s who are are doing better than their younger colleagues because they've had so much more experience if you ever need surgery or an x-ray for that matter these two medical specialties radiology and surgery go to the person who's older rather you want somebody who's done this like a thousand times not somebody Hmm. who's done it six times and is practicing on you
0: what about the role of genetics in this conversation? I mean, some will say, I'm, I'm predisposed to Alzheimer's. It runs in the family. Do, do we know anything else about that or, or how that could contribute to aging or ways to kind of fend that stuff off?
2: There are some rare um, neurogenetic diseases or, or cardiogenetic diseases that will, that will kill you by age 20. Uh, that, that's for sure. Or 98% chance. Uh, but having a genetic predisposition for something doesn't mean that you've been consigned to that fate. Uh, genetics is less like a blueprint and more like a recipe. Um, if you've ever tried to bake bread in Southern California, you know that it comes out different every time, no matter how careful you are. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there, conditions change the atmosphere, the temperature, the salinity of the water uh whatever it is the um the point is that for many of these things including alzheimer's a genetic predisposition just means that you're more likely to get it if you aren't careful but there's a whole lot of variability that's under our control some of the genetic predispositions that we talk about carry only a seven percent chance Very few of them carry more than a 50% chance of you um, getting whatever it is, whether it's cancer or Alzheimer's or heart disease. So we've got a lot of control. And getting back to your earlier point about openness, really the best strategy to uh, wiggle yourself out of whatever genetic predisposition you have is to be open to new experiences. Learn about what you can do. In the case of Alzheimer's, build up cognitive reserve, uh, keep doing things. Look at Glenn Campbell, one of the great musicians of our generation, toured and while well, he had Alzheimer's and he didn't know where he was most nights. He sometimes would play a song two or three times in a row, but all of that cognitive reserve he has as a guitar player really allowed him to be who he was And his wife, Kim Campbell, kindly shared with me the scans of his brain after he passed away. And when he was on tour, literally half his brain was not functioning. And he was still a better guitarist than anyone on the planet. Mm. So if you're worried about Alzheimer's, um, I would say make sure you get a good night's sleep. Sleep is neuroprotective. There are a number of strategies for that. Um, Eat a moderate diet. Uh, you could have, it would be f- ridiculous to say you can never have French fries or alcohol. That's that's not realistic. But, be, you know, eat a diet that's in moderation. If you're overweight, try to get your weight down, To, to you know, but working with a doctor. That's, it's, a, it's another thing, though. There is an obesity crisis in the United States, but there's recent research that shows that weight isn't as big a contributing factor as we once thought. So, if you're 200 pounds 250 pounds that doesn't necessarily mean you're unhealthy if you are maintaining an active lifestyle and you're not too sedentary so mm. I, I i guess this, this whole business of weight is a touchy subject of course and another mm. bias but uh, i think in all these things checking with your doctor About diet and sleep is a good thing. But being open to modifying them is the key. Yeah, yeah. Being open to paying attention to them.
0: I I love the story about Glenn Campbell. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, one thing that Alison Gopnik said when it came to raising kids is that parents sometimes need to kind of get out of the way and let the kid do their thing. And I wonder for on the opposite for for um, adults that are taking care of, let's say, seniors, Uh, sometimes maybe there's a little bit too much hand-holding and sometimes they themselves need
2: to kind of get out of the way too. Does that, does that make sense to you? I'm glad you brought this up, but it's a really tricky issue. So, um, certainly, you know, there was an old, old study from the seventies that uh, still holds, uh, which had to do with self-efficacy or a sense of agency in the world. And, So Stanford researchers went into an old age home and they gave a bunch of potted plants to the residents. And on one floor, they told the residents, here's a potted plant that we're giving you and it'll be nice for you to look at and smell and uh, it'll cheer you up. And and our staff are going to come by every couple of days and tend to it. People on the other floor were told they had to tend to the plant uh, or it would die. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds like a very trivial and simple manipulation in an experiment, but the evidence was overwhelmingly strong that the older adults who had to care for the plant were in a better mood. They were more sociable. They had fewer health problems because they had a sense of agency and a sense of purpose. That's why I say it's so important for older adults, if they're no longer in the workplace they knew, to find some way that they can contribute in a meaningful way to to society, to uh some enterprise that's meaningful to them and to others, that sense of agency and purpose is, is tremendously neuroprotective. Um, that's the conversation that we need to change as a society to, to act more like the Japanese or more like the indigenous peoples who venerate their elders uh, rather than trying to shove them off to the side.
0: It struck me what you said too about learning from indigenous communities or the Japanese. I I wonder if you could if you could add a few words to that. What 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 impresses you about those communities? What can we learn from them?
2: Well, the Japanese have the greatest number of uh, centenarians in the world, uh, and the indigenous peoples of Canada and the U.S. tend not to live to a hundred uh, because. There are other problems of uh, socioeconomic problems, education, uh, alcoholism, and other things that uh, are hard to dig out of. But the common point, and what I think is a great model, is that in those cultures, people go to the elders for advice. They, They seek their advice. They follow their advice. They recognize what neuroscience has only just shown in the last five years which is that the brain is a giant pattern-matching device. And by the time you've seen a lot of patterns, you're in a better position to figure things out, particularly interpersonal problems. Mm. Now, I'm not saying every adult is Yoda or a fountain of wisdom. Uh, Every older adult is not the Dalai Lama. But um, statistically, as a group, uh, older adults are better at at problem-solving, particularly interpersonal relation problem-solving because they've seen so much. That, that little experimental brain that they had as children gathered all this information and continued doing so for decades so that by the time they reach a ripe old age, they've not only seen a lot, but their brains, kind of without their conscious intervention, have formed hypotheses about the world, models of the world, and uh, drawn links and connections between things that the rest of us might not see.
0: I've been speaking with Daniel Levitin. He's the author of Successful Aging, a neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. Daniel, thanks for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we're out of time for today. But if you missed last week's show, we talked with Lighty Klotz about his latest book, Subtract, The Untapped Signs of Less, and Vanessa Patrick about saying no without all that guilt. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or at kcrw.org slash life examines or check it out on the KCRW app. Our producer is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll see you next week.